So tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 11. And as we come to Luke chapter 11, we're going to be picking it up in verse 37, where the conflict is really coming out in the open now of the religious leaders against Jesus. He has set his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's will and the purpose in his coming to die for our sins and rise from the grave according to the scriptures. And as he's doing that, the opposition to Jesus, his person, his ministry, his message is just growing. And the opposition really is based upon this, the simple reality of relationship with God that God initiates or religion where man sees himself good enough to go to God and God is obligated to receive him. And that really is the macro picture of the conflict because, of course, Jesus had a lot of conflict with the religious leaders who felt and believed they could save themselves. But God saw the world that he gave his son, and it's through his son that we can come to the Father. And so this conflict really boils over. We talked about conflict last week, but this conflict really boils over in the text tonight. And as we pick it up in verse 37, Jesus is going to be having dinner with an unknown Pharisee, unnamed. But I, I want to sort of set the stage with what was said on the back end of the text last week where we read that Jesus said that if the lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore if your eye is good, your whole body is good and you're full of light. But if you're the body is full of light and you have no part dark, then everything's good. But if not, then the whole part is dark. And so he warned about, essentially saying is, the perspective that we have, like, are we receiving the message of the Lord? Are we growing in his light? Because Jesus is the light, and we're told that we are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, and we're the light of the world. And so as we receive and we let God work in our life sincerely, and we're living by faith, and we're trusting in his word, we're going to see things properly. We're going to see people properly. We're going to see ourselves properly. Our compass, our perspective is going to be proper concerning ourself, our place in the universe, before the living God and what he has for us. But if we're not responding in faith and we're filled with unbelief or really unbelief and pride and those sorts of things, then we're not going to see things right. We're going to be skewed. Our, our opinions are going to be wrong. Our perspective is going to be wrong. And we're not going to see things the way God sees things. And we talk about praying for having the mind of Christ and have the mind of the Spirit, which the Bible refers to both in the New Testament. So the idea is that is letting God's sword search us and we, we see things the way they really are. And that's the way we want to live. That's the way God wants us to live. But if we don't respond in faith, then we're not going forward in faith, then it's unbelief and pride, and we see things limited to ourselves, and in our perspective as judge and jury of everything, in our perspectives, our perspectives are very flawed because of our sinful nature. And so we just roll into tonight because we're going to see this in this conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisee, the Pharisees, the lawyer, and even the scribes, that he had just said, when your eye is good, everything's good. But if your eye is bad, you're in darkness. So we see things the way God wants us to see them because we're responding in faith. So he said in verse 37, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he, Jesus, had not washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, 
did not he made the outside make the inside also? But rather give but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So we start with this passage. This is where the whole text picks up tonight. And again, we're contrasting faith, relationship, with unbelief and religion. Because believe it or not, world religion is really a form of unbelief against God's revelation to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ, which is where the faith is required. Our faith is in him. Because he's the author and finisher of our faith. And so we know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We know that Peter and John, when they stood before the Sanhedrin Council, these same sorts of people, they said that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. We know that Paul the Apostle, who opposed the early church and persecuted Christians, he said, if righteousness comes through us being good, that is, keeping the law, then Christ died in vain. But he did not die in vain because there was no other way. We're told that we love him because he first loved us. We're also told that while we're yet sinners, Christ and enemies of God, Christ came and died for us to reconcile us to the Father. We are told that through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that we can come boldly to his throne of grace in time of need. But we're told by under the law in the Old Testament, through the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could go in once a year and everyone else couldn't even go near the place because it reflected that separation of God's holiness and man's sinfulness and no one can just approach God the way they want to or how they think they should with some religion concocted in their own mind. God defines how he's approached. God declares who he is. It's his universe, how he works. He reveals his character and he defines how, how he's approached, where he's approached, under what circumstances, under the various covenants up into the dispensation of grace that we are still in and under until the Lord's return. And he works in every generation and holds every generation accountable for that revelation he's given to the generation. And it's always been by faith. We know that in Hebrews 11, reviewing human history, with starting with Abel. It's always by faith. And this conflict of faith in God and his word versus our self-made religion goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And the first death that we know of in human history, Cain killing his brother Abel, was religion killing relationship. It was self-righteousness killing faith. Because we're told that when Abel brought his offering to the Lord, he brought an animal with blood from the flock. He understood the element of substitutionary sacrifice, and he came by faith with the lamb from his flock. He understood the concept of substitutionary sacrifice, which he would have learned from his parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell, and God also provided substitutionary sacrifice for them. And they were expelled from the garden and fellowship with God at that time. But Cain, he came with the vegetables of his garden. He came from the earth, and he came on his terms. 
Just like when Adam and Eve sought to cover themselves with the earth and their nakedness of sin, God would not accept that, and he shed blood of another animal in substitution to cover them appropriately. And one generation later, Abel comes with blood and faith, and Cain comes with earthly coverings on his terms, his ways, and God rejects his offering and accepts Abel's, and Cain is furious, but God says, if you do what's right, will I not accept you? God offered Cain the same acceptable sacrifice that he gave Abel if he was willing to come with blood and faith. This is how it works in God's universe, and there's no getting around it. These are the realities of the universe. You talk about gravity and time, space, and matter being realities of the universe. Physically, spiritually, it's sowing and reaping, and the whole universe is made by Christ, for Christ, and held together in Christ, and he's the judge of it all, And he doesn't change with shadow of turning. And this is how it works in his universe. And we, as the church, have the gospel entrusted to us. And we proclaim a message of relationship, not religion. When Greg Laurie has his Harvest Crusade very soon here in Southern California at Anaheim Stadium, it's not the religious outreach of Harvest Ministries, although some would see it that way, It is the proclamation of the gospel and a relationship with God that Greg Laurel will be preaching, not religion. And the contrast comes right back to this text, this age-old battle from the, the lamb of Abel and the blood and the vegetables of Cain and the pride of religion. Relationship, humility, blood, faith. Religion, pride, earth, unbelief. Faith, blood, grace, God initiated, man uh, reciprocated, received. But pride, religion, man initiated, divinely rejected. So here in this story, this Pharisee would have seen himself as being good enough to stand before God. And The problem is, if the eye is bad, the whole body's bad. And what's amazing to me with this first part of the text we're going to see tonight is that this Pharisee, he marvels. Okay, you think of all the things God did on earth when he was here in the flesh. Jesus raised the dead. He touched the leper and cleansed him. By the way, that's why Jesus doesn't need to wash his hands if he doesn't want to. He doesn't pass germs. You know, Yahweh says, manos, por favor. No, he he doesn't pass germs. He touches the leper who's the most defiled person on the planet, and he heals the leper. There's no decay in Jesus, so even if his hands are dirty, he brings life. He's not, he's, don't you worry about having dinner with Jesus and him not washing his hands. I worry about you not washing your hands, and you can worry about me not washing my hands, but don't you worry about the Son of God not washing his hands, because he cleanses everything he touches. He doesn't defile anything. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can do what he wants on the Sabbath. If he's having dinner with you and he doesn't wash his hands, there's a reason for it. And it's a reason to expose the hypocrisy of this unknown Pharisee. And of all the things you can marvel at in the life of Jesus, how many times, even last week, we said when he healed the mute person that the people marveled. I mean, 
Can you imagine 11 apostles watching Peter walk on water and they would have marveled the, the legion, the demons cast out and marveled and all the things. Jairus' daughter raised from the dead and the people would have marveled. We've never seen such things in Israel. When he preached with authority in the synagogue there in Capernaum and then straightened out the withered man's hands and they said, we've never seen anything like this. He speaks with such authority, not as one without authority. And they marveled. And Jesus Christ, God comes into the universe outside of his dimension into time space and matter walks the earth lives a perfect sinless life shows us the perfect human the second adam jesus christ and everything he does is good everything he touches he brings life to and he should just let the trail of people marveling in his wake everywhere he went and what does this pharisee marvel over that he didn't wash his hands there are people like that all the good things that god does in your life and lives of people you love, and they can't marvel at the, the faithfulness of God in the deep, dark valley. They can't marvel at God's goodness over you on the top of the mountain. They just marvel at some obscure thing that doesn't fit into their little religious cubicle. I mean, the guy marveled that he didn't wash his hands. I mean, really? You've got God in the flesh whose blood is not like the blood of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. In his very DNA of his makeup, his genetic code, it didn't have sin in it. And you're marveling that he doesn't wash his hands? This is what religion does. It skews your thinking because the eye is bad, the whole body's bad, and you don't see right. When we think we can save ourselves with world religion, we don't see right. We blow people up. We blow ourselves up. We do strange things to afflict our bodies. We do strange and bizarre things. We believe the craziest things. Rational people become completely irrational and illogical when they reject the gospel. And it's like when we don't marvel at the glory of God in creation and his order, if we don't look at Romans 1.21 and look... God made the universe into this order. And we don't marvel at that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to look at the creature and marvel at that. And instead of having a clear mind with a good eye and seeing things the way God sees them, we're going to be given over to a debased mind, a depraved heart, and we're not going to think straight, and we're going to think we're right before God. And we're going to try and justify ourselves before God. And that's what Romans 1 warns us about. If the eye is good, the whole body's good. If you see with the eyes of faith, it's all so clear. It's all so simple. It all makes sense. To the pure, all things are pure. But to defiled, nothing is pure. And we think defiled like sexually defiled or, or just depraved defiled. But there's religiously defiled where you don't think straight. And you think you're doing something good for God, like Saul did when he was Saul of Tarsus, when in fact... You're murdering and killing innocent people who are serving God, but you think you're serving God. You don't think straight. And you marvel at the most ludicrous things against God instead of marveling at all the beautiful, glorious things of God revealed to you by God. That's what happens with religion. You reject the grace that you need because you're sitting back as God yourself as judge and jury of God. And God helped the person who tells Jesus he should have washed his hands was thinking that. Just think about that one. I mean, really, for real. This man's at your table, and he raised the son of the widow name. And there were, an un, we don't even know, innumerable amount of witnesses to that. I mean, I've done lots of funerals. I've done three this year. 
And I would have loved to see Jesus walk up to those funerals and raise the dead. Debbie, when I did your mom's funeral, wouldn't it be great to see Jesus walk up to that hole in the ground 10 feet below and just raise her up? Well, he did in eternity, but back to time. And he did that. And he's at your house for dinner. And all you can marvel at is not that he raised the widow Nain's son, but that he didn't wash his hands. What a lesson to us about the danger of being self-righteous because the eye gets bad and we don't see people the way he sees them. We don't see the Lord the way he is. We don't see ourselves the way we are. And we don't see people in humanity the way God sees them. That's the danger of religion, which is obviously the greatest of all dangers. To think that we can save ourselves. By grace we've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone other should boast. Because we are his workmanship. And there's a work he wants to do in and through us when we come to him by faith. We could never, ever earn his grace. And I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad we all get saved the same way. I'm so glad when Greg Laurie gives an invitation in August at the Anaheim Stadium, and some 5,000 people are going to go forward over three days, that there's not a different standard for Daniel Lindbergh than Joey Baran. You know, aren't you glad, Daniel, that we got the same standard? I mean, can you imagine, like, okay, well, you're like this, and you're like that. It's like, wait a second. What? No, it's one way. We all come by it through faith and by the blood of the Lamb, and according to God's grace. It's a universal salvation in the sense that we all come the same way, through faith in who he is and what he's done and promised to do. This is what self-righteousness does in human religion. It judges God. And we've said this before about God's word. It is always much better to let God's word judge you, which is intended to do in a good way, than to sit back and judge God's word. Whenever I read or hear anything of anyone mocking God's word or judging God's word, I just cringe and so should you. And by all means, avoid the influence of people like that, let alone being someone like that. Because Paul made very clear through the Holy Spirit when he said in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. And God is true. And when those books are opened in Revelation chapter 20, God's word searches all things. Jesus said there's nothing that will not be revealed. All things are naked and bare and open to him to whom we must, must give an account. And he has exalted his word even above his name. And his word's going to search us out. And we're told as followers of Christ that we can trust his word, that all scriptures God breathed. And it's, it's there for us to guide us and direct us, to reprove us, to correct us, to lead us and instruct us in righteousness that we can be thoroughly equipped. The eye is right. The heart is right, the mind is right, the body is right, the life is right. That's what it's meant to be, to let God's word shape and mold us and, and direct us. And the irony of it is Jesus would say to these guys, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have life, but they are that which declare me to you. It, it was all there. I mean, the lawyers studied the law of God in the Old Testament. The law of God declares the righteousness that's going to come through Christ. Jesus said, I don't think I came to counsel the law. I came to fulfill the law. Moses spoke of a prophet coming greater than him in the law of God. And Jesus is that prophet. So this is a warning to us about what happens when we think that we're earning our salvation. This is a warning to us about when we sit back in judgment of other people and our eyes not good that we don't marvel at the good things of God. We marvel in condemnation 
of God or the work of God in other people. Love hopes all things, love bears all things, love believes all things. That's what the good eye is going to do. That's what the good eye is going to see. Because Jesus said, you guys, you tithe. You tithe your mint and cumin. It's like you didn't go to the spice store over here, you know, by Portola in the spice store, and you get it, and you pour it out, and you spread out some spice, and you do it in tents, and then, like, this is the Lord's. Like, you're going to do that. But you neglect justice and love. Like, you're going you're gonna to worry more about the spice from the spice store next to Portola and the tent you're giving the Lord, because you're going to figure that out exactly than considering the people that work in the store and the events of the community and the humanity around you and what's right and just and true and noble and praiseworthy. You see, that's what happens with religion. It's very self-centered and, and it becomes gravitational for yourself. So I'm doing this for God and I'm doing that for God and God has to accept me. This, but Eventually what happens is usually people crash and burn with the self-made religion because at some point their conscience is seared or it condemns them. And it can be self-condemning before it's seared. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're going to know that we can never know we're acceptable to stand before the Lord in our own righteousness. But we can know through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can always know that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his and we're the children of God. And we cry out, Abba, Father, through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, dying as a propitiatory sacrifice in our place on the cross, even as Abel brought the lamb, even as God covered Adam and Eve with the, with the covering from the animal that was shed in their substitutionary manner. You see, we can have full assurance in our standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ in relationship, and we can have no assurance through self-made religion, and we can never be sure. Because it just takes one foolish day to train wreck it all. And the real woman of God and the real man of God is like David in Psalm 51 who realizes they were born in iniquity and it's not the sacrifices of bulls and goats, but it's the broken spirit and the humility. Accompanied by the blood of sacrifices of bulls and goats, the blood of substitution that restores a person. David, something interesting in Psalm 51, David understood that Jerusalem, the capital of the king, was not sustained by outward buildings. You know, it's interesting his son Solomon did all this great building and all these things and he fortified everything. But you know, in Psalm 51, you know what the last verse says? Rebuild build the walls of Jerusalem. That's random, isn't it? Build the walls of Jerusalem and let the sacrifices be acceptable. He understood it wasn't about religion, but it was the hearts that moved in place, everything else that would put it in order. You can have all the substance, the cup that looks so clean, but be defiled inside. And what do you say about these, this guy, this Pharisee, and the Pharisees as a whole, who lord over the people? They're religious. They're supposed to be the mediators between them and God, and they lorded over people. They're supposed to be the stewards of the word of God, and they took the word of God, added things to it, and made it hard for the people to come to God. They controlled God's people. They fleeced God's people, and they put burdens on God's people. And Jesus just said, like, you're full of greed and wickedness. What is greed? It's 
not being content with what God has for you. But what do greedy people do? They take. They're takers. Oh, my goodness. They're takers. Of course, religious charlatans are takers. Self-serving religious people are takers because it's all about their religion. Gracious people are givers because they're gracious. But legal people are takers. It's incredible. The human experience is not that hard to figure out. It's pretty clear and plain before the Lord when he speaks. They're takers. They appear to be one thing. They're completely something else. Jesus talked about these same men. They put in lots of offerings. But the widow who gave her little mite gave way more because hers was in faith and theirs was in pride. And they're just giving what they took from someone else anyways in the name of God. God hates religion. It's a, when we say religion, we need to understand every human belief system by which man earns his way to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Because they all deceive. And there's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the end thereby is death. And it'll never go that way. No one is ever going to stand in glory before God through Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, or any other world leader. It's never going to happen. We're going to stand before God in glory through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And who Revelation tells us was slain before the foundation of the world. That's how we're going to get there. And that's who we're going to praise there. They're not praising Muhammad, Buddha, or Moses in heaven. They're praising Jesus Christ by whom are all things, through whom are all things, and for whom are all things. That's what heaven's about. Heaven equals Jesus. Jesus equals heaven. That's how it works. It's his universe. He's the author and finisher of our faith. No man, no world religion. And the devil works very hard to prop up all these false religious systems and philosophies of men to deceive, distract, and lead astray. And my job as a minister of the gospel is to preach to you that Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross for your sins and my sins, and rose again from the grave for our justification. He is ever seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again in glory. That is the gospel message, and that is how we're saved. And we just say, amen. That's the gospel. I never get lost in what my purpose is in life as a minister. I don't need some extra writing to tell me. I just, I have Jesus, and I preach the gospel. Greg Lloyd doesn't need to look for some new thing this year to really make it happen at Anaheim Stadium. It's the everlasting gospel. It's what the angels preach in Revelation before it all ends, too. They close the deal. We have our part, but then the angels, it's like a bullpen. They come in and close the deal in Revelation, if you didn't know that. We have the great commission to take the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. But then in Revelation, when it's all going down, it's the end of the age. Then the angels come in, and they close the deal. And then there is every tongue, tribe, and nation before his throne in glory, praising his name, and all through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what we want to take positively from this Pharisee, unnamed Pharisee, and his friends who are associated with him, is we want to consider well what God puts an emphasis on. And in this passage, verse 42, he says, justice and the love of God. To truly love God is to love people. And to be about God's business is to be about serving and loving people. It is not about being self-centered. It's about being alive in Christ. And I just think, you know, think of the places where Jesus went 
for dinner, if you will, or where he hung out with people. Like, think how much more fun Matthew and the tax collectors had for dinner with Jesus than these guys did. I mean, all you have to do is have two comparative dinners. People who know they need to be saved by grace, and they're laughing, asking questions. They're like, hey, Jesus, you know, like, what do you think about this or whatever? You know, it's like, hey, you know, and, and, and it's like he's, he's drawing people to himself. And he's bringing grace into that situation. And those people know they need Christ through faith. And what do you have? Matthew, the tax collector, who, like the Pharisees, was greedy. He just worked for Caesar instead of a false uh, representation of God. And when he encountered Jesus, he changed. He received the grace and he was different and became an apostle. The same with Zacchaeus. How much fun was dinner with Zacchaeus that night? Zacchaeus isn't trying to be some puffed up religious person like, hey, you know, like you should have washed your hands. Jesus is like, Zacchaeus is like, dude, you're in my house, man. You're in my house and you know what I've done. You know I've ripped everybody off in this city for like forever. And you know that. And so you're in my house. Lord, this night I tell you, I will restore everything fourfold. What's he doing right there? Do you ever notice? Zacchaeus is quoting the scriptures. Because the scriptures tell you the fourfold restoration in that situation. Oh, little Zacchaeus, you little tax collector, quoting scripture. When the one who's fulfilling the law, you're like, I'll restore it fourfold. You'll do the best you can as best you know how. Because this guy came to your house to establish a relationship. And you climbed up a tree to see him face to face. And he came to your house. He exceeded your expectations of who he is and what he would do for your life. He called you out of the tree in front of everybody else who hates you in the city. And he goes and has dinner at your house. Now, that would have been a nice dinner party. To see a sinner repentant and rejoicing in relationship with the Savior, that's a fun dinner. To see self-righteous religious people judging, marveling, because Jesus didn't wash his hands, man, that's the dinner to avoid. That's a movie gone bad. That's just a bad scene right there. That's a dinner you don't want to be at. That's an awkward dinner party. And you're thinking like, Jesus, couldn't you give us a softer landing? Like, hey, you know, if you guys just kind of work through it, you know, we don't want to lose all of our church memberships by offending people. Let's just kind of talk about this a little bit. No, Jesus is like, you're like this, man. You're like a cemetery in Huntington Beach by Talberton Beach where you walk on graves that are marked, which you do, and I've been to a few, cemetery, a few memorials there, and you walk, and I always look down like, who is this? When did they live? And I go, wow, that's the end of humanity. But you're, he said to these guys, you're worse than that. Because people walk right over you, and they don't even, there's not even a, a thing saying you're there. You're dead and unidentified. That's crazy to think that's what he's saying to these guys. They're the walking dead. <laughs> They're the walking dead. They appear so religious, people greet them, oh, rabbi, rabbi, and they love the attention, they love to tell people what to do, and they're the walking dead. Jesus said it, not me. Jesus said, you're, you're like these graves over here by Walmart across the street, the ones with not a tombstone but a flat thing, but there's no flat thing. That's what you're like. People walk right over you, and they don't even know they're walking over dead people, deceased people. And I don't mean that as disrespect to the people in the graves, but I know... Debbie's mom is not in that grave in Long Beach any more than if you walk over mine. Hey, you walk over mine, good for you. You'll paddle, probably paddle past me because I'm going to be scattered in the ocean. So you don't know where my DNA is going to be floating around. But I'm not going to be offended if you just, you know, because I'm not in the Pacific Ocean. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. 
When he comes, it's not yet revealed what we'll be like, but when he comes, we know that we will be revealed with him in his glory, and we will be as he is. Don't you worry about walking over me. And don't be these guys. So the Pharisees, this is just the beginning of like the Pharisee throwdown. But more continues. He says in verse 45, Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe also to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel, here we go, there's our hero Abel, to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it will be required of this generation. And woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter into yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Well, if there was a semi lull of peace between Jesus and these leaders, it's over now. They're not going to be satisfied until they get all of Israel to say, crucify, crucify, away with him. They're not going to be satisfied until a murderer is released instead of Jesus, Barabbas, and that it's Jesus who's going to be crucified. They're not going to be satisfied in their bad eye vision of unbelief and their journey and their pride until they see the Son of God hanging on a cross with a dark sky and a rumbling earthquake, they're still not going to be satisfied. When the veil tears from top to bottom in the temple, they're still not going to be satisfied because they're going to stitch it back together again and act like it never happened. When they put all their guards there to guard the tomb to keep Jesus in the grave, Pilate said, it's yours, do whatever you want. And those guys, another earthquake, and all their efforts to try and keep Jesus' body in the grave are not possible because Death cannot hold them down, nor the devil himself. They're still not satisfied when they pay. Well, can you imagine you pay off the guys who say there's angels there and the tube is empty? And you just pay them off to say, yeah, someone took the body. Again, I tell you, if your eye's bad, the whole body's bad. You don't think straight. That's what happens with unbelief. You just don't think straight, especially religious unbelief. You just don't think straight. So... This second group, the lawyers, they studied the law. Their job was to really break down God's word, to study it. Like, but the problem was, instead of just letting God speak, they'd say, well, this is what he really means. So when you have the Ten Commandments, it's honor the Sabbath day, which means, hey, have a day off. Just relax. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy beauty, creation. Go for a hike. You know, just sit by a quiet stream. Yeah, enjoy your day off. Think about the Lord, like David would do when he, the Lord is my shepherd. These and besides still waters and green grass, right? Like just the Sabbath day, just relax. Enjoy a beautiful sunset, right? No, they got to take that and add 600 subdivisions to it and make it heavy and put more yoke on people's backs. And so it was so confusing what God intended. The heart of God was, 
take a day off and enjoy the good things I've given you. What did Solomon say? When man works hard, what should a man do? Enjoy the good things God's given him. Enjoy your day off. But no, these guys, these lawyers, they say, no, 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 it's not that simple. Like just you having a day off. Don't you start a fire. Don't you pet your donkey. Don't you throw a stick to your dog. You know, all these things, like 600 rules and regulations. Who can keep track of that? That's what religion does. How can you know you're ever right? Because there's so many rules and subdivisions and, oh, it's just, it's never ending. It's like a Rubik's Cube that can never be resolved because it can't. Because if you think you're going to save yourself, it's a Rubik's Cube. You'll never line up correctly because you can't. And the Spirit of God would never bear witness that you did. You come in faith, it's like playing checkers. <laughs> really simple. Simple. It's not complicated. Your move. Receive Jesus. Receive all the blessings and all the promises that are yes, yes, or no, no. It's that simple. But all oh, the lawyers... No, no, no. But what did Jesus say? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. When his apostles were doing the kernels of wheat, right, and, and, and the, these, these Pharisees and these guys like, hey, these guys are working on this Sabbath. And he's like, have you guys read what David did? I went and ate the showbread. Talk about throwing them a curveball. I mean, David eating the bread that was for the priest when he's being persecuted and afflicted by Saul, his father-in-law and the king, fleeing for his life. God looks at the heart. It's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And Jesus, when he healed the man with the withered arm, he turned to those, these same people and said, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? These guys would save their donkey, but they wouldn't save a son of Adam who had a crooked arm and whose life could be improved. He did those things on purpose to reveal and expose their hypocrisy and their falsehoods. And you remember what he said when, he, when the apostles did that? He goes, hey, Lord of the Sabbath, this is, I'm going to paraphrase, but pretty much what he says, like, the Lord of the Sabbath can do what he wants on the Sabbath. <laughs> Let God be true and every man a liar. The Lord of the Sabbath can do what he wants on the Sabbath because he's Lord over it. And the heart of the Sabbath is to bless humanity, not give them 600 plus rules and regulations to make their day off very complicated. That's what these lawyers did. You see, they said, you reproach us. And he says, you guys load men with burdens hard to bear, and you don't help them, verse 46. You don't even lift a finger. You just tell them, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, and you, and you don't help them. See, Jesus is the ultimate servant leader as the Son of God. He said the greatest in the kingdom, what, is the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served like these guys, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Servant leadership. He didn't tell people what to do. He showed them what to do. He showed them grace. He showed them compassion. He showed them love. He showed them forgiveness. Nor do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. He showed them mercy. That's what he did. He showed them the heart of God, the Father. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Noticing the Father, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him full of grace and truth and that's our opportunity in representing christ in our generation you see jesus came into that generation and by the way he says that generation was more accountable than any previous generation he said from the dawn of creation the foundation of the world able to the zechariah that upon that generation the generation when god walked the earth 
who the generation that were the people of covenant, they were more accountable to God than any other previous generation. And as a people group, the Jews, they were. And, and Jesus held them accountable. Their entire generation, nationally, he held them accountable. You know, the only other time he really draws a huge distinction that I can think of, clearly, of a generation is the last generation. Oh, that'll get us thinking, right? What would Pastor Chuck say about that if he was here? Yeah. Because he said that the signs of the times he attributes to a particular generation. There are things that the last generation, not just the Jews, but the last generation of humanity will see that that generation is held accountable for. And he has a lot to say about that generation. And in between the generation of his first coming and the generation preceding his second coming have been a lot of generations, and we're just about three or four of them moving together right now. My dad's 88, greatest generation. We're baby boomers. Gen Xers are here, and the millennials are here too. We're all just sharing the planet for about 80 years, stepping into eternity, new life coming in, eternity. Diapers here, diapers there. It's just the truth, straight up. Someone's got to feed you here, eventually someone's got to feed you there. This generation was held accountable. These religious leaders were held accountable. The religious leaders in this country are going to be held accountable. And those who have faithfully preached the gospel like Greg Laurie and Brian Broderson and many others, Pastor Matt from Shoreline Baptist here, God will affirm his, his favor upon us in eternity. And he will hold accountable those false pastors who preach a false gospel and stumble people either with heavy burdens of legalism and self-righteousness they can't carry or licentiousness and degrading the grace of God and degrading it. He will hold them accountable for the different gospels that are preached in this land. That's the beauty of a free society and the marketplace of thought. You can be saved in it or you can be condemned in it. And it's self-determined. He'll hold congregations accountable for what they chose to believe. This is the, this is, this is the way it is. And we don't want to be religious and self-righteous. We want to be women of grace and men of grace. We want to be saved by faith. We want to be under the blood and we want to walk with humility and brokenness and we want to be part of the solution for humanity. We want to be filled with a heart for justice, the things that are right, to defend the defenseless and to care about people that no one else cares about. We want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to love our neighbor as we love ourselves because we already love ourselves too much and we want to let his love work through us to love other people. And we're going to come into this world and we're going to leave this world. And we want justice and truth and compassion and mercy and love to be the fingerprints of our lives before we step into eternity. That's who we want to be. And that's the legacy we want to have, that we are men of faith, we are women of faith, and we believed all things, we hoped all things, we bared all things, and we always hope the best in any situation up just to, to the very end, that we believe the best for what God can do in anyone's life. We never want to be people that put burdens on people, that write them off, that stumble them and keep them from entering in. We want to be people who love them and serve them and wash their feet and cry with them and bear their burdens and show them the way through our actions and through our words and through our lifestyle and our reactions and how we handle things. That's who we want to be. We're the church of Jesus Christ, and we change the world through humility, brokenness, faith, love, mercy, grace. Because we hope all things and we bear all things and we believe all things. Because Jesus is our hero. 
And Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And we can do this. He's not left us alone. He's given us the help of the Holy Spirit to come alongside us to become that example of Christ in our sphere of influence and in our world. And we might be assailed and we might be cross-examined and there might be people lying in wait for us and there might be people waiting to catch something that we say that they might twist it and use it against us. And we may not have the same perfect wisdom that Jesus Christ had, but even to his apostles, he said for the entire church age, don't worry about what you say in that day. Holy Spirit will give it to you. And don't fear him who can th- kill you. Fear the Lord who has dominion over all souls for all eternity. So I, I, this is a difficult confrontation. There's no way around it. And it's the way it is in life. And if we were Christians in Pakistan, we might know this a little more than being Christians in America. There are so many countries like Indonesia and places like that when you're living for Christ that you, you know what this is like. And people try to maim you and destroy you and wreck everything you have and disfigure you because of your faith. Here, they just make fun of us up to this point. Humility is good for all of us. It's good to be able to laugh at yourself. It's good. It's good to be able to laugh at yourself. It's good. It's good to be teachable and grow and learn from our mistakes and shortcomings. In the end... We don't want to put burdens on people. We want to lift their burdens. And we want to be part of the blessing, not part of the burden. We're not trying to lord over people. We're trying to lead people to the king. And we lead them through humility and love and compassion. And whatever comes from that, we're in First Peter on Tuesday nights. And Peter's like, if you suffer for doing good, what are you going to do? Would you prefer suffering for doing evil? That's what he said. He goes, don't suffer for being an evildoer. That's what the world suffers for. If you suffer because you're doing good, then that's all right, man. There's a blessing in that because Jesus did it. And so I want to encourage us tonight not to be uh, deceived by religion in our own mind that our eye would be bad and our heart would be bad, but our hope would be fully rested on the person and the character and the promises and the work of Jesus Christ as the church of Jesus Christ that our confidence would be 100% in him and who he is and his faithfulness to us in every part of our life. We're going to get to heaven, and we're, we're going to think about the faithfulness that he's shown us in our life that we do know, but in heaven it will be revealed to us all the faithfulness that we didn't know. How many times did he deliver us? How many times did he protect us? How many times did he provide for us? How many times did he show great grace and mercy to us that we don't even, aren't even aware of? I want to always be ready for the day of the Lord by having faith and humility and a good eye and seeing things the way they really are as God sees them. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth it is in heaven. See things the way God sees them and, and have the justice, the, the, the heart for justice and the love of God and carry the burdens and serve humanity and trust God will fight your battles because he's really good at defending his people. He's got your back. So just keep on keeping on. Some conflicts you can't avoid. And the conflict of living for Christ in every generation is unavoidable to some degree. So take heart and be encouraged. And I leave you with what Jesus said. Blessed are you when men persecute you for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake. There is a blessing. And Peter said, for this you were called. So, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight and its application to our life. 
this is serious text because it's serious topic and there's no way around it, Lord. There's no soft coating this. There's no, there's no soft landing. Lord, there is just no soft landing for Luke eleven thirty seven through 54. There's just no soft landing. There's just a lot of woes, a lot of calling out of hypocrisy, calling people fools. You call them fools, Lord. You call them foolish ones and you call them hypocrites. And they said, you reproach us too, and you pronounce woes upon them. And you held them accountable for the blood of Abel. And you held their generation accountable. So Lord, help us learn reverently to understand that the, that the kingdom is, is the kingdom. And souls do matter, and the redemption of souls is very costly. So Lord, may we appreciate the gospel of grace in our own life, and may we extend it to the lives of others. May we keep things simple and humble and gracious and merciful. And may we be the servants of all and trust you in everything that goes on in our life. And may we keep growing day by day to become more like you until this journey is done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.